Well, at this time, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Uh, the text this morning will be a parable that may be familiar for some of you, the parable of the prodigal son. We'll be focusing on verses 11 through 32. And before Dean comes up here and brings to us God's word, we're going to read Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. If you are looking for a Bible and if you need one, there are these blue books around you. Feel free to pick up a copy and follow along with us. If you do not have a copy of God's word, um, we have plenty of them. Well, this morning we're reading from Luke chapter 15. And starting in verse 11, this is God's word. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and fell a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, was, he received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead. And is alive, he was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, bro. Yeah. 
So we're back in our series uh, of looking at the cross. We've taken a little break from the book of John and looking at the idea of what the cross is and particularly how it affects us in everyday life. And, uh, and today we're going to talk about how it affects our relationships with the holy God of the universe, uh, even when we run away. I tried to run away from home once. Yes, I did. Uh, I was eight or nine years old. Remember being a bit bratty at that stage and um, got mad at my mother, got so mad at her that I said, I'm leaving. So a mom, being a very wise woman, said, okay, go ahead, go ahead and leave. Now what you don't know is I lived in a part of Charlotte in Madison Park where the Charlotte bus line went right by my house several times a day. So in my head, I had a plan. Uh, but I was going to catch that bus and go somewhere. I didn't really even have a plan of where I was going. So I got a bag and put some things in it. I even included some Legos in the bag. After all, you've got to have toys when you run away. Then I went outside and stood in the next yard over from mine, literally next door to us, and waited for the bus with my bag. I waited there 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes. And you know, for an 8-year-old... Waiting for 20, 30 minutes feels like waiting for eight hours. So after a few minutes, I was like uh, starting to get a little bored. I, I wondered, uh, it's getting a little warm out here. Then I, I, I started thinking to myself, I'm hungry. I sat down and waited for a few minutes. And, and uh, finally, I sort of forgot what I was mad at and decided, I'm going to go inside. I'm hungry. I'm going to get something to eat. And so sure enough, I went inside. And there was my mom. She was waiting for me. She had all along been watching and waiting for me. In fact, I bet she was even chuckling at the silly ways of an eight-year-old at that point. She knew I wouldn't be gone long. And that is how I ran away from home once. Pretty lame, huh? Well, today in Luke 15, we are going to look at one of the most famous parables about a kid who runs away from home, we even sometimes think about in the process. We're going to look at the well-known parable of the prodigal son. Uh, there is a whole lot we could say about the prodigal son as uh, we talk about it today. And there's no way I can get it all in one sermon. You'll probably be relieved to know that as well. If you want to know more, I do encourage you to read Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God. It's an excellent kind of overview of it that just centers on the gospel and the process. I will also note that as we go through the parable of the prodigal son today, you'll probably notice there isn't a lot about the cross here today as we're kind of talking about the cross and its implications. But I hope to show you a little later that uh, the cross is in the background and how it affects our relationships with God. The truth is, all of us, even many of us here today, find ourselves standing on the road waiting for a bus to catch a bus away from God. That's where many of us go in our hearts. And so today I want to ask the question, what does the cross have to do with when we try and catch the bus away from God? And how does that affect our daily relationship with God and even with other people whenever we find green or even in the back of the bulletin if you want to follow along? And we're going to look at really what the cross does for us relationally. Dynamic starts out in verse 11 of our text where it says this, Jesus is speaking and he says, 
There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And so this is the first introduction, if you will, uh, of a a parable. And Jesus is telling the third of three parables at this point in in Luke 15. And all the parables about this dynamic of of being lost and found, lost and found, and just kind of back and forth throughout the three parables. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in verse 1 of our text. If you were to go back there, Pharisees who were grumbling about the fact that Jesus, this great spiritual leader and rabbi in his time, would dare to hang out with the wildest people in society, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, we might say in our time, drug addicts, homosexual activists, Bernie Madoffs of the world, these kind of radical, notorious people. Now, now notice Jesus opens the parable talking about a father and two sons. A father and two sons. You see that in the very first verse. What that means is we just don't focus on the prodigal alone when we look at the father and the sons in the process. Now, the outline of the story is well known. One son leaves the family, goes crazy with wild living, loses everything, hits rock bottom, returns home where the father receives him with joy, this big celebration. It's inspiring. It's heartwarming. But here's the thing. Sometimes in the general overview of it, we forget the pain that's involved in it. We forget the hurt and the pain going on in a lot of broken relationships in this thing. So let's dive in and look at the main characters and talk about the parable and the broken relationships involved. And we'll start in verses 11 through 24 where we find out about the younger son first, the so-called prodigal who comes home to his father and, and comes actually to his father at the very beginning in our verses and asks for his inheritance. Now right off the bat, you have to understand this is a pretty hurtful damaging thing to do in relationships, particularly in first century Judea. It was hurtful, even dark, to ask your father if you can have your third of the estate. Now, in those times, the older brother or older son would get two-thirds of the estate, and the younger would get a third. That's how it worked out in that culture. Now, here the younger son is coming and asking for asking this before the father dies. (laughs) It's like he's saying, it'd be like your kid saying, Mom and Dad, give me a chunk of all your estate, all your bank accounts, all your retirement, even just the properties you own now, before you die. Before you die. I want it now. Now, that is insulting in and of itself, to be asked for money before you die. Now, the father, what he does is he has to go and in some way in our text spend some time probably liquidating part of his estate to give it to the son. Um, That probably took time to do that because in that day and age, you didn't have a lot of cash hanging around. You had mostly land holdings. So he was busy doing that. And then, after he gives the son all this money, in a terrible case of bad stewardship and short-sightedness, The younger son blows everything. He blows everything in wild living. And even verse 30 tells us sexually promiscuous life uh, uh, as a reputation. The tragedy of this is very simple. He used his father for his money. 
and he mismanages the family fortune for his pleasure. What's Jesus' point? Jesus is trying to describe us. What we do in a life of where we can say, I'm done with God, I'm done with all constraints or restraints, I'm going to go and do my thing without God. In other words, the younger son leaves the relationship. The language of leaving in Scripture is that of forsaking, forsaking a relationship. Now, that's the younger son. What about the older son? Well, you can see his story in verse 25. It says, Now his older son, that is the father's, was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. Now the older son is introduced to us as the dutiful one who's out working the fields, who's doing his duty as being responsible, compared, of course, to the younger son who doesn't look like he's working at all. The older son is the one who stuck around with the family business. He was the together one in this group. Yet, as the text goes on, it reveals some interesting things about the older brother that actually isn't that together. He finds out about his younger brother's return, and he freaks out. Go to the celebration and greet his brother. His father comes out and calls to him to come into the actual party, but instead he responds with a kind of self-righteous entitlement against the father. He rants for a few moments. And worse, in verse 25, 29, notice this, he calls his father a slave master. He says, I've been serving you all these years. It's the language of a slave driver, as if the father didn't care for them. You can hear a little bit of the entitlement dripping from the son in this statement. And then he says two key phrases in verse 29 that reveal him further. Did you notice this in verse 20? He says, I never disobeyed and you never gave me anything. Okay, rule of thumb in relationships, especially marriage. Don't use the word never and always as a rule of thumb. It doesn't go well when you do that. Uh, And here the son is doing that very thing, accusing his father in the process. He's saying really hurtful things. There's some relational violence going on here albeit different relational violence than what was going on before with the younger son. We might say, or as Mark Twain says, he was a good man in the worst. What's Jesus getting at with the older brother, though? The older brother's way was the life of religion, of duty, of always doing the right thing, at least how he defines doing the right thing. Jesus is talking about how we can actually forsake God in our hearts while looking good as religious people. That's what he's saying. Now, there are two results that come out of this that are kind of within the text. Uh, the two results are two S's that I would give you today. Two S's, separation and shame. Separation and shame. First, regarding separation, did you notice that both ways 
of the younger brother and the older brother are separating themselves from the father in religion and irreligion, if you will. They're forsaking the father in relational alienation. You and I have to realize that we are all prone to both of these and can either have a season of life where we're leaning one way or the other or doing them at the same time. How many do you know who are kind of wild and crazy people who also have a strong sense of righteousness of how things should go? That's how deceitful our hearts can be sometimes in light of our brokenness. The second S in our text is a result that shows up in relationships that I'll be straight with you. I don't think we like to talk about a whole lot. And that's shame. Shame. The sense that I am broken in this relationship. I am revealed. The truth shines on me in this relationship. We are exposed by God as the truth comes out about ourselves and our sins. Now, i got to be clear. There is such a thing as false shame, where in our culture we're called to be ashamed of things that we don't need to be ashamed about. But that's the nature of the world, is it wants to turn shame upside down so that you're ashamed of things you're not supposed to be and not ashamed of things you're supposed to be. There is such a thing as healthy shame. Healthy shame you don't want to live in forever, but you actually have to go through to realize, I am broken something's wrong with me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the language of someone before God in their shame. You know what we could say about these two guys in the separation and shame involved here? It's this. They were relationally radioactive. Relationally radioactive. Now, I know you all, people at work or in the family, who the more you're around them, the more you go, oh my goodness, there's a lot going on here. You know, there's a lot of brokenness. I don't know that I even want to be around them. And so what we'll do in our culture typically is we'll just distance ourselves, right? Nobody here has ever done that, right? <laughs> but that's what we do. We distance ourselves when we feel like somebody's radioactive. Do you know how they treated relationally radioactive people in the ancient Near East? This is how they would treat them. They wouldn't distance themselves. If a son did a shameful thing, a public sin of something that brought shame upon the family, here's what would happen. The father would come up to the son. He would say, give me your coat, your robe. He would take it from him and he'd say, get out, you're dead to me. Get out. You're dead to me. The old language of Scripture is that's exile. If you go to some uh, Middle Eastern cultures to this day, they still do this. That's what happens in the ancient Near East and how they handle shame. But that begs the question of us today. How does God handle our real shame with sin? How does God respond in our text. What is held in the text? Look with me, if you will, at uh, verse 20 through 24, and we see how the father responds when this son returns after this terrible season of, of, of uh, doing terrible things with the family fortune and even with his life. In verse 20, it says this. It says, uh, 
And uh, the son arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him, and kissed him. This son has blown one-third of the family fortune. This son has lived such a profligate life that the community, even his brother, knew that he was sleeping around with prostitutes. This son has been living such a radically dark life. He comes home. He dares to come home. And what does the father do? The father receives him. The father takes him in. In this profound picture, you see the father running out to the son. Now, you got to know, for a dignified, we'll say family business owner, a father, a patriarch in the ancient world, running was not a normal passion he had for his son. Not only that, uh, he, the Greek says he comes in and hugs and kisses him. You know what the Greek actually says? It says he was hugging and kissing him. Meaning it was just kind of like, oh man, I'm so glad to see you kiss. Oh, I got to kiss you again. You know, just a constant barrage of joy just oozing out of him at the sight of his son. Now the son in this text does some cool things. He, he starts to apologize and he's got his speech ready, right? He'd already been practicing earlier, you know, I'm no longer worthy uh, to be your son. Uh, I've sinned before God, before, before heaven and before you. He even brings God. It's a good kind of confession, although it kind of goes off the tracks when he starts talking about how uh, he doesn't deserve to be in the family and that he'll even serve as a slave. We'll come back to that shortly. Before he can even get to the last part of his speech, the father said, what? Oh, hey, everybody, come on. Bring the, 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 all the fatted calf. Bring the party. We're going to celebrate tonight. This is awesome. Isn't it great? My son's back home. You can see the joy going on in the father. And we have to say, what's happening here? What's going on with the father? If you had somebody in your life who had brought terrible shame on you and your family or your, your, uh, your business or something, what's going on here are two big things I want to highlight today. Extravagant grace and sacrificial love for the younger brothers. The father gives the son the opposite of what he deserves. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Just, uh, excuse me, grace is a free gift that is the opposite of what we deserve. That's exactly what he's doing in our text here. God is giving this free, or the Father is giving this free gift to the Son. And I know it's extravagant grace because in verse 30, did you see how the the older brother freaked out. Look at verse 30 with me. This extravagant grace is mind-blowing for him. He can't handle it. He says in verse 30, When this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Are you serious, father? Are you serious? That's what he's saying. The older brother wanted justice. He wanted the son shunned and out of the family because he had shamed the family. 
He had broken so many rules. I have to say the older brother's story is really represents a false perception about Christianity. That it's about religion and obeying the rules. That church people are those who keep religion and obey the rules, and if they disobey the rules, you're out. It's about do, not done. No doubt the rules matter, and we care about what God's law says. And I'd even say that uh, if you're reconciled with Christ and saved in Him and experience His love, you are called to a life of love, to obey Him and to follow Him as King and Lord. But you've got to understand, when it comes to the rules, the rules are important, but they are the fruit of Christianity, not the root of Christianity. The root of Christianity is not do, but done. Not do, but done. We start out with a deficit of sin from birth. We start out wandering from God from the earliest of days. Anybody who's had little children, you know that for a fact, experientially. But Christ has actually lived the perfect life for us. He has actually pulled it off so that our life is not our own. Let me, let me sh- illustrate for you what happens with Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me explain. God takes Christ's righteousness and puts it on us and takes our sin and puts it on Christ. That is what happens in Christianity and how Christ has accomplished our our salvation, not ourselves. The cross is the central place for that. It's where extravagant grace is manifested to us. But not only is it a place for extravagant grace, it is a place of sacrificial love. Josh, um, Nate, others have preached on the love of Christ in this thing, but i got to tell you, the love of Christ is all over the place in this text. Now, i got to tell you also, it's tempting to take the fatted calf and to make it interpretively the sacrifice for sin in our text that's, that's a parallel to the cross. But you got to know throughout Scripture, the fatted calf is normally something for great celebrations, not actually uh, sacrifices for sin. But, as Tim Keller says, there is a sacrifice. There is a cost in this text. And the cost is this. The younger brother returns... But when he returns, there's a cost to the father and to the... When the younger brother returns, the father and the older brother will have to take care of the son. And he doesn't have resources anymore. They're going to have to bear the burden of taking care of him financially, even though he's blown the estate. What's so radical here in our text is this. The the older brother doesn't want to take the burden. He knows what's at stake here. He actually knows that it's going to cost him with this younger son coming back. He won't get as much resources in, in the estate because he'll have to take care of his brother. And so he wants to refuse to take care of the son, whereas the father wants to take care of the son using the resources that they have. You know what's missing in this text? It's an older brother who would take the burden on himself, who would pay the price 
endure the cost that the younger brother's sins created. We think that older brother is Jesus Christ. Jesus, who gave of his life on a cross and who lived that perfect life for us, paid religiosity would not do. Jesus is the one who would stop his brother from a life of going the wrong way. Last week, there was a football game between Fairfield High and Rodriguez High in California. At one point during the game, a Fairfield player intercepted a pass from the Rodriguez quarterback. But the Fairfield player who intercepted the pass started running the wrong way. All his teammates were saying, turn around, go the other way, turn around, go the other way. But if he's tunnel vision, he's going as hard as he can because he thinks he's going for a touchdown. Until a teammate, K-Ron Thrower, another Fairfield player, took off after his own teammate, chased him down for 50 yards, and tackled his own teammate at the 10-yard line before it ended up being a safety, basically, for the other team. Our text cries out for someone to tackle us when we're going the wrong way. Jesus Christ is the one. He's the one who, who takes on the burden of justice for us. He's the one who stands in our way. He's the one who loves us while he stands in our way, even when we go a different... Have you ever felt tension with someone? How about right now? Have you ever felt shame that you don't know what to do about something yourself when you see something wrong in people or, yes, even see something in yourself? You can feel the distance grow, can't you, when there's something broken in a relationship or it grows cold for whatever reasons. You can feel it. Have that natural distance and tension and coldness with God in our own flesh. But Christ comes to us and rescues us as our older brother and covers our shame. He makes the first move towards us to build that relationship to reconcile us. In fact, this whole text is about reconciliation, about how God moves into our world and he actually reconciles us to him in Christ. Colossians 1 says it like this, For for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, and this is key, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is the older brother that you and I need to come and be a mediator in our relationships with God. He's the one who jumps in and bridges the gap. Now, what's the love of God and the cross got to do with us today. We've hit a few kind of uh, illustrations, but I want to conclude today with a, a few applications. And the first one is this. The first application comes relative to the cross, and the prodigal son story is this, is that we are called to repent. Repent. To come to our senses and see that there is a far better life with God than the messes we keep making. Repentance is turning. It's turning. 
It's getting up and seeking the Father and going a different direction than you were before. In particular, following Jesus himself in his ways. That's what repentance is. Uh, Repentance, to put it in the language of our culture, is change. Change of character. We all like change. I think there's, everybody in this room would say change could be a really good thing, whatever it is, be it in business or in family or whatnot. Change could be a good thing. Well, that's what the language of repentance is. It's change with a trajectory of following Christ. A trajectory of following Christ. It's putting off the old and putting on the new. It's giving up to gain. If you're exploring Christianity for the first time, I would tell you, come home. Come home and start following your older brother who's passionate about you. The second application I bring today is for followers of Christ. Something I think we struggle to remember is that we are children of God. Did you notice in our text a running theme? How the, young, the younger brother, or actually the older brother in our text, uh, thinks he is a slave working for his father? That's his perception of his relationship with the father. And then the younger son comes back and he says, I'm not worthy to be a son. Uh, Just make me one of your slaves is basically what he says. I suggest to you that we as Christians are very prone to becoming slaves and thinking our identity is that fundamentally versus that of 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 a child. Your identity is grounded in your sonship with Christ. Uh, Christ has brought you into the family, and you are loved by God by virtue of just the love within Him, that extravagant grace, that sacrificial love. It's not something you can work for. The world says, perform, and you will be loved by God. Christianity says, be loved by God at the cross in Christ, then act and perform for God once you've enjoyed the tremendous grace that he has offered you in Jesus. I would say the reason a lot of you struggle with obedience and feel frustrated in your walk with Jesus right now, which would be just all of us in the room probably, is you're not thinking like a child, you're thinking like a slave. You're not living like a child who is already loved in Christ once and for all and acting out of that rather than performing to somehow make God please you. The third thing I would bring in this text is this. Do you know how you can know that there is sonship in this text? I just talked about how your child, you know how sonship shows up in this text? Did you notice how the father responded when the son came home? Put shoes on him. Most slaves were barefoot, so there's a, a thing of dignity. Puts a ring on him, probably a family ring with a family insignia. That's a thing of, indig- of dignity. But there's this one thing that shows up throughout all of Scripture. From, we'll say, Joseph and the coat of many colors all the way through Scripture. And it's this. When someone is endowed with sonship in a family, the father, and says, you're in the family because I gave you the coat, the righteousness of Christ covering you 
at the cross and through his life. That's how you know you're a child. By the fact that God has called you a child when you receive Jesus by faith. The last thing I would say is this. Home is waiting for all of us, and that's the final benefit. Home. How much we want to be home with God. All of us here are looking for home. I'm looking for home, too. We look for it in our jobs. We look for it in our families. And we always find there's something broken about everything we search for home in. But Jesus here in this text is teaching one thing. Home is with God. It's with Him. And with the older brother who has loved you and given himself for you. Home is waiting always and every day for you, even if you've been following Jesus for 20 years. My first pastorate, uh, I was preaching one time, just like this. It was actually a smaller crowd than this. Uh, it was a revitalization church, and we were doing a lot of hard work. I was up preaching, and uh, one day I was getting sort of in the middle or near the end of my sermon, and this young man walks in the back of the sanctuary and sits down on the back row. And uh, so I'm, you know, like, just happen to notice it, and so I'm preaching away. And then the young man gets up, and he walks up a couple of pews and sits down again. Now other people in the church are noticing. <laughs> then the young man makes his way up again to another couple of pews. I think of some of the men at this point were thinking, man, if I had my gun ready, I'm, I'm ready to go, you know. Everybody was wondering, what's this young man doing? So I get to the end of the sermon. And uh, I pray, and then we all get up to sing to me, and all the men are watching like I'm ready to jump, you know. This guy comes up to me, and you know what he tells me? He says, Pastor Dean, ten years ago I broke into this church and stole a bunch of stuff. And I buried it nearby, and the police were out looking, and since then I've actually had a really rough life with drugs and a host of things. I would like to ask this congregation if they would forgive me. I was like, I think we can arrange that. So as the hymn ended, everybody's looking like, what's going on right now? This young man proceeded to, to confess to the whole congregation what he had done. And you know how this group of, I mean, everybody's eyes lit up like, oh yeah, we remember that when we were broken into it. And he's like, here's what happened. After I gave the benediction, all these old people, 70 years old, who'd been there, helped build that church 50 years ago, rallied around him, hugged him, kissed him, held him. I mean, those big kind of big hugs, you know. He wept in their arms. And as I tell you this story, I can tell you God did a great thing that day. I could give you an application of you need to forgive people because we tend to think of ourselves as the church reaching out to that young man. But you know what that would be? Moralism. Older brother stuff. Actually, you're the young man. Every one of us here is. And Christ is waiting for open arms, with open arms for you. Take that in. You're loved. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that um, even though we have done dark things in our hearts and some of us in our lives,
that even though we're lost, we can be found. Even though we think of ourselves as slaves sometimes, even as followers of yours, you remind us that we're children loved. I pray today that you would massage these great truths of the gospel, this prodigal son story into our hearts as we think about what difference the cross has made for us today as we go home, Lord, dwelling on what it means to be embraced by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.